Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlogRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. BlogRadio.com. It's a pleasure having you, Dr. Glory Van Scott. Thank you. You are truly a life among legends. Thank you. And welcome to the show. Welcome. What I would like to... Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, perfect, perfect. Um, what I would like to do is to um, ask you first off your your life, your 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 legend, you know your history with with the arts. It's so profound and it's so broad. I mean, here in the United States, and you've traveled abroad. What stands out for you most? I mean, can you? I, I've read your book. Let me just say that <laughs> I absolutely love the book. I, it's so full, it's so rich. Uh, there's so there's so much real life information in the book that I can actually relate to, uh, going back to you know your grandparents, your grandmom, you know your relation with her. But let's start there, I mean, if we can. Um, Negro spiritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read in the book that you actually got motiv- your motivation or some of your motivation from Negro spirituals. Can you, can you touch on that? Yes. My mother, who, she wasn't a singer, but she loved music, and she used to walk around the house singing them. And I would walk behind her singing too. You know, what she was singing, I would sing. And so then you would hear them in church, and you would, she would say, this is Marian Anderson, and this is Paul Robeson, and, this is, and put recordings on, and you'd listen to this. And that is what made the difference. I thought it was the most beautiful music I'd ever heard, and to this day, it is still my favorite musical. 
I love them. I love them for the passion in them. I love them for the strength within them. I love them for the identity that when you are singing them and thinking of them, you are standing strong and proud, and nothing's going to push you, your element of who you are as a human being, out of the way. Oh, that's beautiful. Now let me let me just ask this. By connecting with the Negro spirituals, what was your next move? Did it motivate you to become a singer? Or did it motivate you to reenact what you were singing about in those Negro spirituals and thus get into dance? What it did was make me know, and even as a little child, that I, I had power. That was the thing is that I was being given power when I would hear the songs or listen to Marian Anderson or listen to Paul Robeson or listen to these people sing or you go to a church and hear them sing this and you saw the passion and the strength in that. It, it girded me. It was an underpinning for me so that I literally had what I need when I went out into the world as I got a little older. It was like I had some strength that's coming from spirit. And it's so strong, nobody can destroy it. Mm, and I knew beautiful. that from being a little kid, you could not destroy that. Yeah, body can be destroyed, but you cannot do a thing with that spirit in terms of destruction because to do that, I'd have to give you my power to do it, and I will never give you my power because wow. my power is the spirit. You cannot have that. You may send me to the moon, but I still that spirit's still going to be here. Exactly, exactly. So would you say that that is the power that motivated you to get further into the arts? It is the power, yes, because I love the music, and then, of course, I started listening to classical music. My mother loved opera, so I'd go to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra with her to hear opera. So I was exposed to all of this, and it was wonderful. And then I went to the Cultural Arts Center, which the Abraham Lincoln Center, which was uh, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, a very famous architect, and was beautiful, had a library on the first floor. And the first place to hit, maybe I'm six, seven years old, go into that library and sit and have story hour and sit and listen to the librarian talk and read and these stories. And we had reading in my home. Every kid, all my brothers, my brothers and my sisters, we had to stand up and read. So you couldn't get away with, like, you, you think you know something. No, no, your turn to read, here's the book. You read, now you stand. We'd be in a circle sitting in our family in the living room, and this is what was expected of you. So you were ready. Wow, that's amazing. So it amazing. all connected. So by the time I went to the Cultural Arts Center, I was like, hello, I am here. And when I was five and six years old, I would jump up and start playing, banging on the piano when guests came to show you. I was already into the music, into the dance, and all those beautiful things that, were, that artists come to and see and know that it's their life's work, it's their life's bread, it's their life's water, it's their life's food. Oh, now this took place where exactly in, in the United States? In Chicago. In Chicago, okay. where I was born. In where you were born, exactly. Yeah. Wonderful Chicago. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you eventually migrate from this uh, company to New York City to do Broadway? Well, I was I was studying and I was doing uh, uh, I was acting, singing, dancing, and and also studying music and. What happened is that I was performing a lot, and one of the teachers who had been uh, in a Richard Wright film, her name was Gloria Algeman, she was there at that cultural arts center where I was studying, and she was teaching some drama, and so she saw me on stage any number of times there because we had a theater in that that, uh, uh, beautiful place, and she said to me, and she knew I was coming to to the encampment for citizenship in New York, which was for young citizens. And so she knew that, and she said to me, when you go to New York, you must not come back. You are slated for the theater as an artist. You must not come back to Chicago. Chicago can give you regional, but they cannot give you what you will get in New York. How did you feel about that? I agreed, and I said to my sister, my, my oldest sister, she's a couple of years older than me, I said, um, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to the encampment, and I'll be there. And, and, and I was told not to come back, and, and I don't want to come back because I know Broadway's there. And I consider myself the sepia Mary Martin. You sing, you dance, you act. Okay, so that's where I belong. It's in New York City. You know, it wasn't I'm going to do that in Chicago. 
And so my sister told my grandmother, so my mom and dad, they knew nothing about it. And we hitched up this thing that once I'm here, when I'm finished with the encampment, then I'm not to return to Chicago. And I'm to go down to the, the, the International Spelman Hall Y and stay there and go and take the classes in New York and do the things I needed to do. But what also was something that led me is that when I was uh, maybe seven years old or eight, my dance teacher from the Cultural Arts Center took me and about six other little girls to uh, um, the Goodman Theater to see Charlie Beatty's company perform. Now, I had not seen uh, any of the dance of Catherine Dunham's. I had, didn't know what that technique was. And I was sitting watching uh, Charlie Beatty's company perform, and, of course, he was a Dunham dancer, and, you know, he wound up being a very famous choreographer as well. And I'm watching that, and I said, oh, my God. I love that. That's what I want to do. That's what I, I don't want to be a, uh, I used to call it a belly arena. I want to be, I want to dance that technique. And that's when I first beheld it. And so then, so when I came, <clears throat> excuse me, to the encampment, <clears throat> I decided I was going to stay, and the teachers were panicky, like, da, da, da. yeah, I am going down to the Y, uh, WCA, and uh, it was an international one down in, in at, at, at Hudson Street, 607 Hudson Street. That was the address. It was marvelous. Girls from everywhere. It was gorgeous, right in the village. And I um, knew that that's what I had to do. I had to stay. And then I, then I went to the Martha Graham School, but then I discovered I really didn't want to do the Graham technique. And someone in the dressing room said to me, well, have you been to the Dunham School? I said, where is the Dunham School, the Catherine Dunham School? They told me. I go down to the Dunham School, and so I'm shown, look through the door to see the technique, and I said, that's what I want, and that was it. From the moment I saw that, I was straight as to what I was going to do. And so, and right away got into their experimental group, which is, you know, new kids, you're getting into something, was dancing in that, and went from there. It was extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. But, but, But the other thing is that from that, and from the other studying and doing this and going to this school and doing that here in New York City, I then wound up getting auditioning for House of Flowers, which was a Broadway show. And when I went to the Broadway show to audition, George Balanchine was the choreographer. And so I went and I got, on, uh, I got selected to come back for the final audition. So I said to myself, and this is, shows you how things work, I said, okay, when I go back, I'm going to stay in the back of the line, and I'm going to keep peeking around so that when my turn comes, I'm going to do things perfectly. So that's mm-hmm. what I had in mind. We get to the theater, and George Balanchine says, Balanchine says, and Glory Van Scott, you lead the line. I said, wow. oh, my God, my goose is cooked. <laughs> he cooked it. That was your moment to shine. <laughs> I was in shock. And my mind said, okay, kid, this is it. You've got to look, see what it is, and get it and, and be you know, resolute in what you're doing, which is what I did, and I did get the job. So I'm just – and then, then, of course, what happened with me with that? Guess who my colleagues were, the other ones who were in, in line and, and, and who were dancing, who were going to be in this show? And people ask me to this day, what kind of water did they give those of us who came out of that show? Because in that show, it was Jeffrey Holder – it was Lewis Johnson who did the movie of the Wiz and, and, and all these operas and stuff. Like that. It was Lewis Johnson. It was uh, Jeffrey Holder. It was Carmen de Lovelot. It was Alvin Ailey. It was Arthur Mitchell. It was me. It was Pearl Reynolds. It was uh, 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 a guy who was also the the person who wound up handling affairs for Leontine Press. We were like people said, well, what did they give you guys? I said nothing. We had water, the same water tap that you used. We did. You know, but it was it's an amazing kind of time that at that time, I don't know what was happening with the, the hemisphere or what was happening in heaven or what was happening in terms of what was looking down on earth at us, but it was looking down and saying, you have work to do, artists, and you go forth and do it. Wow. And, and we did. Yes, and during the time of House of Flowers, that was probably, what, the mid-50s? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a, an interesting time, particularly to be – in New York City. Oh, it was fantastic. It was a, but the thing is that I had never felt, it's, it's a funny thing because from childhood I knew where I was slated to go. I knew that I would do theater. I knew that I would dance. I knew I would do all these things and wound up really doing what I could have told you at the age of five, what I'm going to do when I grow up. 
and I was right on target as to what I was going to do, and, and I didn't know which way it was going to be, but once I was in New York, it was all very clear to me. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> um, now, during that time, as I mentioned, uh, being in New York City was um, – It had to have been, I'm a 60s baby, so I can't really identify, but it had to have been a very interesting time as an entertainer. Uh, New York City, particularly Harlem, you know, was was very, excuse me, was on the uprise uh, since the Renaissance and Broadway, of course, and a lot of doors were opened for people of color in the arts. However, in the South, can we can we discuss a little bit of um, what was going on back in the South um, at that particular time? As I've read, um, the late Emmett Till is your cousin, second yes. cousin, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to if you don't want to, because I, I've, as I've read in the book, that portion of that chapter is very short. And as you have expressed in the book, uh, you know, as I can imagine, you were in shock uh, during that time receiving that phone call or your mom or another relative receiving that phone call. Um, is that something that you can actually talk about today? Yes. You know, I, okay. once that, the, the interesting thing is once I read this newspaper, which showed the casket that Emmett had, you know, that's where he took his final uh, sleep, when they showed that an artist had had painted that, and they had it at the Whitney Museum, and the the photo or the picture, and people were, you know, they had a lot of controversy about it. Some people said they shouldn't have shown that, they shouldn't have this, they should, how dare they do that? It was art. And I was reading that Sunday New York Times, and I was sitting there, and then the tears started to come down. And once mm-hmm. they came down, the floodgate opened, and I visited really those feelings I had about the whole thing. When it's been all those years, I had not but I really did then. And as yeah. as I am now, I look at things. I, You know, if something is happening, people say, well, they did this, people did that. I said, there is nothing more you can do to me. Mm. Nothing. I have now the structure of what you will do, but I also have something that's in the way to keep you from making it hurt me in the way that you would like it to. Mm. That's powerful. And that's how I feel about it. That's powerful. And I see how those Negro spirituals have carried you mm-hmm. through that time mm-hmm. and through that and through that unfortunate event. Look at when I was, what, 11 years old? It was like 10, 11. I, I think in the book I had written about me being with kids from the south side and we were all playing baseball and we were a winning team and we were on the north side playing kids who were not uh, kids of color. And but they had a lot of grown up there, and we were winning the baseball game, and the, the uh, parents didn't like it, so they pushed our teacher who was with us, and she fell down, and and so I took off running because we were on the north side, totally an area we knew nothing about, and I was running to look for help, and I was running, and then I turned around and I looked and I saw that whole team, of of, of the opposite team running behind me. Now, I had been a runner, and I even considered the Olympics because I loved running, so I was really fast. And then, and I was running, and then all of a sudden, something made me stop. And I stopped, and I turned, and I had my little fist balled up, and I waited for them. Something turned around and said, no, I will not run. I am waiting for you. Oh, my God. And I was no more, I wasn't even, I don't know, maybe 10, maybe hit 11. And I had my little fist balled up and I stood there and something said, what's going to be is going to be, but I will not run from it. Wow. And that's when I found out who I was. And you truly did. And yeah. you moved on to do bigger and greater things. You mm-hmm. stayed on your path. Mm-hmm. Wow. You are truly a legend and, and, and quite a role model. Not Thank just you. as not just as a, an actor or a dancer or even a singer. We didn't even get into that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but well, just people as always a say, humanitarian. Well, what like? well, people will say, well, what do you like best doing this, doing that? I said, why do I have to make a choice? I will explain to you that a person is like a tree, the trunk that's the base of you. You have all those branches. Now, you have a choice. If you find this branch is one that can sing and that branch is one that dances and that branch is one that writes or that branch is one that plays a musical, whatever, 
you have a choice of developing them or not. Now, that's up to you, so it doesn't mean you have to say, I prefer this one or that. You might, and you might decide that. I've never felt I had to make a decision that I prefer this more than anything else. Well, because you were born with the the gifts, plural, to do them all, and you had the courage to expound on your gifts and your talents. That's well, you. You know, I mean, you know but I feel that other, you know, and when I teach, because I have a youth theater, and I feel the same way about kids come. And just the other day, I said to my youth theater, I said, and I, I really develop students in the way so that they wind up going to the best universities, they get scholarships, and these are kids that are from poor families. But their mind is not pure, poor. Their mind is very rich. And that's what people have to realize. You're going to go by, you're going to say, this kid's got all this, got all that. I said, they have all the accoutrement, but what has this one got that maybe they got that kid out of a project and that kid's got this going and that's going? Just give that kid some food for his mind or her mind and watch and see where they go. Exactly. Now, do you still have this youth, uh, the yes, youth theater? Dr. Glory's Youth Theater is in Riverside Church, and, and there's a theater in there, and we're in there. And I've had it maybe 12 years in there. And I have kids coming from Harlem, from the Bronx, from, you know, from all over. And they're incredible. My, some of my favorite students, one graduated, just graduated from Yale University about a year ago and had spent, you know, like eight years with me, ten years with me. So I'm saying that, and they're going, and they do go to school beyond it because I said, you know, it's up to you. It's not up to your parents. You know what's in your mind, and you know what you're receiving and what you're learning and what you're doing. You have that opportunity to do that, and you can do that. And you do not let anyone tell you you cannot. Because if you do that, you're saying that they have more power than you, and they do not. Oh, yes, yes. Now, your students, uh, what, what is the age range of your students? I'm eight years old. I had a six-year-old once from India, but he's now on the West Coast. But basically eight years old, because I really want them to be able to really read well, because I write a lot of, of, of uh, productions, and they need to know how to read and, and recite in and, and that way. But eight years old to like, like 18, and then they graduate and they go off, and they come back. Some of them are graduating here. They come back from college <laughs> looking for me. So it's, it's exciting. Now, let me just say this. From a perspective of someone, I'm a 60s baby, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. I've, I've personally noticed a difference within the arts and how art has changed. Mm-hmm. Dance has changed. Lyrics have changed. Um, the millennials, as you would call it today, have become so desensitized to things or to lyrics or or just aspects of art that, say, 20, 30 years ago, you know, may have been restricted or we were, very, we were more careful about what we said, what we did, even dance expression. Do you find that today's uh, generation is still somewhat desensitized to certain aspects of the art? I think so. But I, I think that they have to – here's the thing that I think we have to put as much as we can into when we're teaching them so that they understand that. But mm-hmm. ultimately, they're going to have to find their own way and do what they do. Now, the way in which I look at it, I look at it in terms of the world. When you are born, you, grow, you get older and things change in your body, your mind changes, you change ideas, you get more mature about things, you understand it better, you know, whatever. It's the same thing with the things that happen in the world. You, somebody, when they first invented a tool that in order to do this, it was okay. Then a little, little later, it was a little better. Or then that one did this. It's, it's just that you have to look at the world and say the world is constantly changing and recognize that. What you have to do is the good part of that, try to make sure that somebody has it so they can continue it and develop even more, but not lament. I only lament that the phones that they have and that the kids are stuck on that, they're standing next to each other and talking on that instead of, turning their face and looking at each other and having a conversation. So therefore, conversations uh, get lost, which I would hate to see get lost, but it does. And I I believe more in that you've got to have more interaction. But in terms of the world, it's going to change. You can't control that. Right, right. 
Uh, and you hope the, for the better, that, that things are better, and you try to put some input in to see that it is a good thing. But you've got to know also, you can't sit back and just lambast them and go, well, look, listen to the lyrics, listen to, and go like that. My, in my time, they said this. In your time, they say that. In these kids' times, they'll say that. And then years from now, 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll be saying something else. Just know that it's going to change, but hope that you give them something that can help them in the change that would be beneficial. I agree. I totally agree. Oh, thank you. I I just wanted to also mention uh, mention Dr. Glory Vance. Scott, thank you so much for giving us the time for this interview. I I wanted to touch very briefly on uh, your relationship with Catherine Dunham, the Mm -hmm. legendary Catherine Dunham, Mm -hmm. the gala that you actually produced. Uh, Can you tell us a little about that? Well, I was I was at. At that point, I had been in the Dunham Company, and I had come back. I was doing Broadway shows, and then, then I was in Agnes DeVille's show, and, and I had to go to East St. Louis to learn uh, uh, guitar, Floyd's guitar, blues, which Miss Dunham used to dance in a company, and so I went down to learn that. And so she was teaching it to me, and then after that, uh, I was getting ready to come back to New York because I had a, a tour to go with Agnes DeMille's company. So I go, and I'm sitting with her in her bedroom, and we're talking, and she's, and we began, of course, talking about when I was in the company and, and, and what all that was. And then she said to me, oh, I would love someday to see the Dunham dances again. And I looked at her, and I said, oh, you will. She said, I will. I said, yes, you will. Now, when I said that, I did not have one farthing to produce anything or do anything. I said, you will see those dances again. I came back to New York. I got a National Endowment for the Arts application. I filled it out. And even where it says organization, because you're supposed to be an organization to get this grant to do this, to do that, I wrote in a magic marker, I am the organization. I forgot everything else in that <laughs> and sent it to the National Endowment. And they said they laughed when they saw it because they knew I was a Dunham dancer and, and, and I also was performing and, you know, I was a dancer of merit. I wasn't somebody who just kind of met, was just around the periphery or something. So then, of course, I did get the grant and then I got, you know, matching funds for it, and, and they had said, oh, and I said, you know, I want to have a gala at Carnegie Hall. They said, well, you get the things videotaped now, and, do, and then later you fly for another one and then get that. And I, I said, uh, I said, there's no way. I want the gala, and I'm going to get the works videotaped, and which is what I did. Got some other matching funds, got that gala, three different generations of Dunham dancers to perform, did that whole thing. It was the first time out of the barn, and so National Dunham says, oh, my God, right. There I was, and there you were at Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. Fantastic! Mm-hmm. Thank and you. And that started so the whole thing for, for for me for that to producing things for her and producing this, and that's when I began that producing and and directing and doing all of that stuff. That's when that happened. What a great contribution! Again, I thank you. Thank you, well, Dr. Glory Van Scott. Thank you so much for well, uh, for the wonderful interview, and you have shed such light. Thank you for being the star that shines upon others and shows others how to shine as well. Thank you so much. And I hope that everybody gets my book, Glory, A Life Among Legends. Check, check it on Amazon. Yes, Glory, A Life Among Legends is mm-hmm. the name of the book, a memoir mm-hmm. by Dr. Glory Van Scott. And, yes. I, again, I thank you. And I thank you for having me. Oh, have a have a blessed holiday. You My too. name is Rhonda Terry, and we're about to wrap up this session and move on to the next portion. I thank you so much, Dr. Glory Van Scott, for attending and giving us such a blessing of history. And I I I I wish you well in your future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you.
This is Sherry DiCarava. Good morning, Mrs. DiCarava. Would you like to be addressed as Ms. Turner DiCarava or just Mrs. DiCarava? Oh, uh, just Sherry. That's fine. Oh, and Sherry. this is Rhonda Hamilton. Rhonda Terry. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Rhonda Terry. I have, you know, uh, a number of interviews today, so I'm trying to sort through them. I'm <laughs> glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. So is there anything in particular that you would like to um, to speak about in reference to your own accolades? I mean, there's, there's you know, quite a few things that we could discuss in reference to uh, your late husband, Roy DiCarabo, but is there anything uh, in reference to your accolades that you would like to discuss today? Well, um, I just want to give people hope and encouragement and uh, leave them feeling that there are possibilities in life and uh, you can engage them uh, at any moment in your life process. And I, I think that's been true for me personally. I've always been interested in art as a child and as a youngster and as a high schooler and um, and then into college. But I also had a wide interest in trying to understand how we got to where we are, uh, how this society evolved, um, what kinds of <clears throat> what kinds of uh, things came into play that uh, left us in a situation where so many people feel they are struggling and uh, not having their best life. So I think... I would want people to understand that uh that uh, your your chosen profession the things you want to pursue in life are a key to unlock answers to some of these questions that uh seem to be with us uh very prominently today now, which medium of art are you specifically more interested in? Well, I guess you would say, if you wanted to uh, put a handle on it, that I'm an independent scholar. I'm interested in the the written word and in writing. But I've also been deeply connected to the visual arts and and also musical arts. Uh, like most people, I'm uh, very interested in uh black music traditions from the blues to jazz. And uh, I, I think these are things that you develop an early interest in, you can, and, and then they stay with you and sustain you for much of your life. So this was how I came to know my uh, husband's work. Uh, he was a photographer and my uh, uh, I came across this book, uh, about photography, uh, and he had pictures in it, and I went through the book and uh, just uh, tried to decide which pictures I liked best, and this name kept coming up, Roy Rava. <laughs> so I, that's how I knew of him. That's how I first met him. And then I came to New York to go to school, and uh, I majored in art history and uh, took a year off from school between uh, undergrad and grad and uh, went to work at the Brooklyn Museum where I started uh, their their initial and first programs in uh, queering and sussing out African-American artists who were active in the community at that time. And he was one of the people that uh, I invited in to speak at the museum. So um, that, but uh, you know, there there are a lot of uh, different ways that one interacts with uh, the community when when you have these interests in culture. And uh, I just felt that uh, it was a very special time uh, to to get to know people and to observe and be part of the art scene at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, is um, is your husband's art actually displayed at the museum, or has it ever been displayed? 
Mm-hmm. Well, there is a show up now, Soul of a Nation, which was uh, organized by the Tate Museum in London. And uh, he has uh, a very nice showing of some 21 prints in that exhibit. Um, so you get an opportunity to see a range of his work. Uh, the exhibit is related to uh, issues of civil rights and the expression and struggle for civil rights. Though uh, he usually didn't like to uh, show around a thematic. He, he just showed works that he was working on because for most photographers, their best work is the work they just did yesterday. So um, he had that idea as well in his mind. He wanted to share his work with uh, his most recent work with people. So um, he didn't really think uh, a lot about thematic shows. But as we all know, uh, the public is interested in things and our museums. So uh, this this particular show uh, features civil rights, his civil rights work. Um, but it's unusual work. It's not uh, strident. It's quiet. Uh, it's subtle. And these are issues that uh, come up in his work frequently that people respond to. Interesting. Now, you made a statement um, stating that photographers, for the most part, they believe that their best work is the work of yesterday. Can you expound Mm -hmm. on that? Well, you know, uh, photography is the medium of the moment, uh, Mm -hmm. both literally and, and, uh, and philosophically. It's uh, a medium that comes from an instantaneous response to a object, the object being the lens of the camera. And uh, it's also an instantaneous, uh, although people don't look at it this way, it's an instantaneous response to a multitude of things that are happening in any given second of time. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's what you're thinking, it's what you sense, it's what you feel. Um, all these things come to play in making of a photograph. Um, so I think I would, you know, ask people to bear that in mind that it 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 is the the medium of the moment because on some level it's very simple to engage. You buy a camera. You uh, now you have digital, mostly digital options, and uh, you put your finger on the shutter, and and voila, there it is. But uh, uh, actually, it's a more complex process as a cultural uh, a, a cultural uh, phenomena. It's much more complex than that, and I think the show exhibits that uh, wide range of imagery. Uh, fascinating uh, takes on civil rights and uh, the struggle for freedom. I see. Now, <clears throat> the you're absolutely correct. I, I have a copy of the book, and I must say that I I can't find a my favorite. <laughs> I mean, because all, I, I can't. I, I'm very honest. Um, yeah. One of them I actually relate to quite a bit, which is the street scene where the kids are actually playing in the street. I know that it's summer because <laughs> the hydrant is open. <laughs> mm-hmm. And those were, the, those were the days when the police did not come down the block and shut everything mm-hmm. down. You just allowed kids. That's when yes. kids were kids. Yeah. And you know, and then there's another photo where there's a woman sitting in a window. It's it's very, as you say, very subtle. There's no mm-hmm. special lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you don't even see the the features <laughs> of her face. You see her turned away. She's just very quietly yeah. sitting in the window, looking out. You see the curtains, and the curtains even give a story because those are typical curtains that a particular generation would actually put in the window in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those, I, my grandmother had those curtains. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so now it's time for concession. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So, 
I'm a 60s baby, so I may not be able to relate to all of the photos because I can see based on the dresses that the women wore or the hats that the men wore that a lot of these photos may have been taken, I'm guessing, in the 40s and the 50s, mm-hmm. maybe pushing into the 60s. But Well, look, he had one of the longest careers in American photography, almost mm-hmm. seven decades. And uh, so you will find yourself and your time in his work, you know, uh, because you have all these choices of, 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 uh, of the time, time that... Uh, the images were taken in, but um, photography itself is is a, a really alluring medium, and uh, it I would say it's the the medium of the moment. It's also the medium of the millennium. It is, uh, and the fact that uh, so many people use the imagery, use the camera, uh, have a camera, and uh, take pictures. Uh, of a wide range of things, you know, sort of testifies to its importance in our lives. And its uh, its importance bears further witness, I think. Uh, I think we should be more conscious, we should read more, we should think more about this medium because it's, uh, it preserves the present and the past for the future. And uh, that's a pretty powerful position to be in. I agree. I agree. Now, did he actually take family photos? Did he take photos of you or any of your children? And do you have a collection of those? Mm, he did. Uh, he uh, Children, oddly enough, are particularly challenging because they're so facile. They are, uh, kids are so beautiful, you know, they are so free. They play openly. Uh, they don't have the kind of inhibitions that... Uh, or worries or burdens sometimes that adults carry on their brows. So uh, I, I, for that reason, you know, you, you don't want to go for the easy thing. And he, so he did photograph his family, although I must admit to, to being the main family photographer, uh, you know, I, I don't consider myself an expert, but. I know how to put this shutter every now and then. But, you know, I wanted to return to your descriptions, which were so vivid, of uh, some of the pictures. The one of the, the the summer scene where the kids are playing at the hydrant. Yes. There there are so many levels in uh, an image, uh, and uh, it really gets to what we can appreciate most about it, that uh, that our minds are kind of touching each other. Yeah in remote, you know, situations. We don't know each other. You know, we may be on the other side of the world, but we're holding in our hand this thin piece of paper with an image that someone made and wants us to see. So um, one of the things about that image that uh, may be less appreciated um, is that uh, the young man who's holding uh, the stream of water coming out of the hydrant and uh, he's sort of sh- uh, stripped down to his shorts, his Bermuda shorts, and his uh, back is clearly visible. And he's a youngster, a teenager, but his it gives us a moment to contemplate the strength required to hold back a full hydrant of water, you know, yeah. spewing out of and there is a kind of meditation on not only his generosity in doing this for all the little kids running around, but uh, also his the power and strength he holds in reserve, maybe in his life, you know, rather than just about a stream of water. That's so, very true. Uh, photographs are open to our musings and and uh, probings and. Uh, one of the things that is wonderful about an exhibition is that you get a uh, a, a full opportunity to um, to engage, you know, at your pace and at your uh, level wherever you start from. You you grow from there with an exhibition. 
Wow. And um, your husband and uh, the late Langston Hughes, now were they actually good friends prior to getting <laughs> together to put this book together? Uh, what, what was that about? Yeah, well, that was about the Sweet Fly Paper of Life, uh, a mm-hmm. book that later became, uh, it was a book before it had a name. So uh, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting story. Um, my husband felt that um, black people were perennially viewed by the larger society as a problem. And uh, he didn't share that point of view. He grew up in Harlem, lived there for many years, and um, he saw the human potential of Harlem and in enactment in, in every day, every morning when he went to school, people caring for each other, you know, offering aid and comfort to each other, uh, and raising families, and kids playing. He, he saw all these wonderful human capacities of the people he lived with. So he wanted to, um, he had, he was a painter. He'd been known as a young child as a um, uh, chalk artist. He used to draw these cowboys and Indians figures across the expanse of of, uh, sidewalk. So this, this appellation, um, uh, it, protected him from the gangs because they looked out for him. They were kind of charmed. And if you can use that word with reference to a gang of kids, but they they were sort of charmed by his his insistence on being known as an artist and doing these, these chalk paintings across the sidewalks. So um, he developed this uh, into uh, a real interest and in high school became more aware of art and um, uh, long story short he uh, became a painter and was using a camera uh, at some point to as a quick way to sketch he rapidly found that, uh, that uh, it was more complicated than that and that the camera was his real metier because it took him out of the studio where he was alone and put him in the world where he was surrounded with people who were engaged in life. And this, he it, suddenly the light bulb went off and he said, well, this is what I really want. And um, so uh, photography is very much about walking. Uh, it's... Uh, you move around the phenomena that you are attempting to understand and capture. And uh, so uh, he was a walker, and and uh, he had a day job to pay the bills, but uh, at lunchtime or before work and after work, he uh, would walk around Harlem with his camera. He always kept his camera with him. And... Uh, he uh, he loved to read the Amsterdam News. That's that's not a plug. I don't own stock, but um, <laughs> he loved to read it because, particularly because there was this column called Simple, which was written by the famous, then even then celebrity writer Langston Hughes, who who lived in Harlem. Now you have to understand this at that time. Uh, celebrities walked the streets of Harlem. They lived in Harlem. They couldn't live downtown. Uh, That didn't come until the 60s, you know. But, um, and in the 50s, those who couldn't live in Harlem went to Europe, and a lot lot of artists did. A lot of black artists from Harlem did repatriate. And uh, so, anyway, there were, everyone, they lived amongst ordinary people, you might say, and uh, he, everyone knew that Langston lived in Harlem, and he was, he was like Roy, he was on the streets because he listened to people. He picked up dialogue. Mm-hmm. He, he was a listener, and, and he was where people were. So uh, one day Roy was out walking, and he looked up and saw this gentleman, and he knew instantly it was, uh, it was Langston, so uh, Langston saw him and was very interested in uh, cameras and photography. 
Yeah, which was then a kind of leading uh, leading uh, engagement of young artistic people. And uh, so he walked up to him and he said, hi, are you a photographer or do you have a camera? So they struck up a conversation and he gave him his card and invited him to his house and said, bring your photograph, I'd love to see them. So uh, Roy did that, and uh, the first thing he said to him uh, upon seeing his work was, man, you've got to have a show. You've got to have a book. And uh, Roy explained to him that uh, he had tried to show these accumulating uh, groups of uh, imagery that he had been working on since the late 1940s uh, of Harlem, and uh, he hadn't been able to convince a, a publisher. You know, at that time it was rather strictly controlled, the industry, and they didn't uh, publish much in black culture. And uh, so Langston offered to take, he was, Roy was just so honored, Langston offered to take his work around and show it to publishers because, you know, he had his own publisher who was bringing out his work. And um, so he did that and to no avail. And then finally he took it to his own publisher, Simon & Schuster. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, oh, okay, well, Langston was their, one of their favorite authors. Peter Simon was a great uh, admirer of Langston and... Uh, so he said, yes, we'll do this, but you have to write uh, a story to go with the pictures. And uh, so that's how the book got done. And uh, it was a collaboration, but uh, a kind of incidental, random collaboration because the pictures came before the uh, text. And in the end, the text and the pictures live in this kind of uh, uh, sweet and uneasy place wherein they correlate but they don't and they integrate but they're uh, random. And so you have this sort of wonderful mixture of, of Langston's words and ideas for a narrative and Roy's pictures. He, by the way... Roy never uh, uh, tutored Langston. He he had just you know amazing respect for him as he, an elder uh, literary artist. And when he first saw the book, he was a little disappointed because you know photographers like big books, and uh, he thought <laughs> it was going to be a big book. Langston reached behind his back his own back and pulled uh, this little thing out that fit into the one's, the palm of one's hand practically and from his back pocket and said, well, here it is, man. And Roy was just a little, you know, it took a moment to recover. Uh, that <laughs> moment lasted quite a few years. <laughs> because of the size of the book. But because of the size. But it is but quite red. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but he also, um, there was a long arc. This is about uh, art to um, wisdom. Because yeah. eventually he understood Langston's point that you could keep this in your back pocket and take it with you wherever you go. It was your comfort. It was your. It could be your Bible in some ways, and exactly. and the wisdom encoded that he put into uh, his feelings about the pictures. He was uh, Langston was so inspired by the pictures that he actually recreated the personalities of the individuals so accurately without knowing anything about them. These were really yes, the, random I, wow. yeah, random people. He, Langston didn't know any of them. And uh, Roy them. never told him anything about them. Hmm? Interesting because I was yeah. I was looking for the book and there's a a, a person named Rodney who appears quite frequently on several pages, different shots. So that is the character's name? (laughs) 
Rodney. No, that was not his name. That's the name. Oh, wow. But I would have never known that. I, I was really getting to know Rodney, like a real person. I had no idea that it was a fictitious well, name. Well, let me, let me tell you that Rodney is getting to know Rodney. I've had people come up to me and say, uh, I'm Rodney. My name is Rodney. <laughs> and they, yes. And they 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 kind of apologize for having the same name, but it's the same personality. They recognize themselves mm-hmm. in the look. So Langston mm-hmm. reached into a, a, a deep river of psyche and he was forward thinking and mm-hmm. and he he could mirror and express and it's ex- exposed the commonalities of our experiences. So um, the um, publisher, Simon & Schuster, in 1955, the publisher um, included postcards uh, in the book when it sold. And uh, people would fill out the postcards and send them back to the publisher. And they had comments like, you know, Wow, you know, from Minnesota. Wow, this is this is just like my cousin, or this is Rodney's my brother. Just, <laughs> you know, not quite a ne'er do well, but you know, a guy who had his own perceptions about where he was to be and what he was to do, and uh, the photographs were used as inspiration. They came first, and uh, I think that's a fascinating fact about the book. Also, uh, that um, I've been, uh, well, I've been working, you know, it had a long history. It went out of print many times. There was no distribution. Langston and Roy would take it around under their arms, you know, a pile of books to uh, bookstores in Harlem, these shows and so forth. And uh, so it, it, it survived. Uh, in this strange kind of hand-to-hand process, you know. Um, Yeah, carrying it forward, you know, from one particular hand in a generation to another self-appointed hand in the succeeding generation. But there was always someone to catch it, you know, and bring it forward. So this last um, period of of out-of-print really lasted quite a while and um, thinking about Langston and Roy carrying these books under their arms to various bookstores in Harlem and in the city, I just said, you know, I'm not doing that again. And uh, I, uh, so I opened a press and uh, found the technicians who could uh, translate this uh, this book into modern terms, into the best publication, best uh, printing we could find. We went to Italy. And we worked with a small family uh, publisher, printer, press, and uh, we got the book done. So there's a new edition of this beautiful you. tritone photograph. Exactly. Right think- off the presses. <laughs> It's and, a great uh, idea. The size of it is great because most most books uh, that in t- that include a lot of large uh, photographs are hardcover, mm-hmm. and they're usually yeah. coffee table books. But this one is mobile, which again you're bringing it forward into the new generation where everything is mobile. I actually yeah. saw a, a photograph that it's not included in the book, but I do believe that your husband actually shot it. And it's mm-hmm. a photo of Langston Hughes. It's a it's 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 like I know him. It's like I, I I've read his his poetry. Um, I've read you know some other works by Langston Hughes. But when mm-hmm. I see the photo, it's the real Langston Hughes. It's he's mm-hmm. not posing. He's outside in the park with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and he's smiling. Mm-hmm. And it's like now that's oh, yes. Langston, you yes. know. Yes, that's um, his picture. Mm-hmm. Now, is your is your husband's work actually displayed at the uh, Langston Hughes home located in Harlem? Uh, well, I that's a hard question for me to answer. One because I I haven't visited uh, the Harlem 
home of Langston. Uh, I've been by the front, but I haven't actually been in the house. Um, the uh, And that has something to do with uh, what after Langston died. Uh, there was, a, I guess there is always this period of confusion and settling of uh, the estate and so forth, and then the house was sold. But um, before th- before these things happened, uh, Roy and Lincoln had formed a, a, a friendly relationship uh, as fellow artists, and uh, he. Uh, um, I, I think personally that Roy was. Uh, this is my own opinion, but that Roy was uh, Lincoln's favorite photographer. He asked Roy to photograph him for, you know, book covers and things like that. And so the, he has quite a depth of um, of uh, pictures of Langston, so many that at Langston's centennial, which was about 10 years ago, I think, or a little longer than that. But um, uh, this was, uh, there was a... Uh, or, uh, an organization of a centennial celebration for Langston's birthday, 100th birthday. Uh, I I gave, uh, Roy and I actually gave a um, a discussion uh, on stage of uh, Langston, personal pictures of Langston. And I thought I had a few, and I ended up showing about 86. Wow. uh, Finished, you know, really first-rate pictures, uh, pictures of Langston at his typewriter, pictures of, you know, he was a night owl. And uh, mm-hmm. so uh, the pictures have this beautiful velvety tone to them uh, mm-hmm. that only comes when, you know, it's twilight or it's uh, it's it's very quietly dark outside and uh, there's no light filtering in windows. And... Uh, and he also photographed him in the park, and I think that the one you referred to was one of those. Uh, yes. Langston was uh, a very sharp dresser. Um, people knew how to dress back then. I mean, you know, no one was wealthy, but they dressed well. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Langston was always well-appointed, and uh, and uh, Roy enjoyed, you know, working with him. Um, Roy did not do much commercial work, and when he did, he kept it uh, completely uh, separate from his artwork. But I would say Langston, if you want to call that, you know, his Langston's request to to, to get a book picture done for for something coming out, you know, if you can call that a commercial. Roy worked on. I'm. Uh, will be contributing an essay to it called The Sound I Saw, which was is his work on uh, jazz music, uh, which extended over about uh, five decades. So he caught all the major uh, players in jazz who were in New York City. But he didn't uh, photograph them as celebrities. He photographed them as workers and uh, as uh, uh, people engaging in an artistic process. So uh, we're very excited about that. That will be coming out in in 2019 uh, with Roy's Centennial Celebration. Right around the corner. I'm looking forward to that one. Most definitely. Thank you. We're also having a show, an exhibit at uh, the Zwerner Gallery, David Zwerner, that's in downtown New York. And that will be in the fall of 2019. So we're slowly bringing the work out. What is the name of the gallery again? David Zwerner, Z-W-I-R-N-E-R. And that's uh, in Chelsea. Okay, okay. Great. Great. Well, Mrs. Sherry Turner de Carava, thank you so much for this fantastic interview. Well, what thank you for your your questions. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to people about uh, Roy. Uh, we were very close and had a wonderful relationship. And I uh, I want to uh, you know tell people that, that they can engage uh, art in any time of their lives, uh, from 
you know, early infancy to to the decrepit old age that uh, that we seem to get to uh, from time to time, but but that really is a renewal of uh, of our understanding of our earlier lives. So, absolutely, and yeah. thank you for carrying on your husband's legacy. Thank you. What a contribution. Thank you. Once again, my name is Rhonda, and we are about to wrap up this segment. Thank you so much once again, Mrs. Sherry Turner de Carava. It's been a pleasure. Author and art historian, and happy Thanksgiving. You've been listening to the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Souls.